Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. On this show, the team of experts from Bright Horizons College Coach aim to demystify college admissions and finance. From choosing the right college, developing a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and more. Each episode will help guide your family through the various steps of the process. Now, here is your host. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I feel like I haven't hosted in a while, and I'm happy to be back here with all of you today. Um, don't forget, I'm going to make my uh, my every podcast podcast that I host plea for you to review us on Apple Podcasts. The more reviews that we get, the more people are able to find us and get the help that we're putting out there into the world that if you are listening, you presumably value. Um, So if you would, we would really appreciate it. Um, We have a bunch of great things that we're talking about today, including preparing to spend your college savings. Um, There are some things you want to think about as you start, you get started thinking about doing that, um, and we're going to tell you what that is. And we're also going to offer some Common App updates. The Common App has just done um, an update and provided an update for all of the uh, counselors out there, and we're going to share the highlights with you. But before we get to that, um, we wanted to talk today about colleges whose names may not relate to the actual student experience. Um, And joining me for that conversation is Heath Einstein, who is the Dean of Admissions at Texas Christian University, or TCU. Um, Hi, Heath. Hi, Beth. How are you? I'm good, and I appreciate you joining us today. And I'm excited to talk about this because I feel like sometimes we put schools on students' lists and they get upset based on the school's name. And, um, you know, we're trying to dispel a few myths out there about um, the name and the actual experience that students are going to have. So why don't we start with, can you tell us about TCU, which, which, as I mentioned in my intro, is Texas Christian University. Suggests it's a place for Christian students, but is that actually the case? It's a great question, Beth. And, and first of all, thank you for having me. Um, I spent eight years of my career in high schools making those lists and having those exact same reactions sent back to me. So Mm -hmm. I very much uh, uh, can appreciate what you've experienced. Texas Christian University is a medium-sized national private uh, liberal arts arts and sciences university with fantastic research opportunities um, and wonderful pre-professional programs. We have eight undergraduate degree-granting colleges within TCU, but every student completes what we call our core curriculum. So whether you start as a nursing major and change to religion, or you are a dance student, or an English student, or business student, or whatever, everyone is going to be completing this core curriculum because we believe that there are certain uh, types of courses, certain disciplines that all students should have exposure to in order to be uh, a contributing member of, uh, of society. Um, baked into that core curriculum, one of our requirements is a class in a religious tradition. But notice I say a religious tradition, yes. not the religious tradition <laughs> or a particular religious tradition. So certainly at Texas Christian University, we offer many courses in Christianity Um, But the assumption is not that every student here is Christian, nor are they interested necessarily in exploring Christianity. 
Um, and so a student could satisfy that religious tradition requirement by completing a course in Caribbean religions or Eastern religions. Um, and, uh, and they would be in exactly the same uh, position in terms of, uh, of meeting their graduation re requirement. TCU was founded in 1873 by two ministers of the Christian Church Disciples of Christ. And in order to fully understand TCU, one has to have at least a basic understanding of the DOC, which is a fairly small Protestant denomination found largely in the Midwestern part of the United States. The DOC believes strongly in this idea of faith with reason. That is, we don't accept ideas just at face value, but only through rigorous exploration do we come to some greater understanding of the world around us. And the disciples also don't believe, and this is really key, that there is one right path. Mm. And so because of that, this has always been an ecumenical university founded by a faith that is ecumenical. So we have students here who are Christian, to be sure, but we have students here who are Muslim and Jewish and Hindu and Baha'i and students of no faith. There's no requirement that students sign a statement of faith when they come here. Um, I think the interesting thing um, is, as you were sort of alluding to earlier, is the expectation that some people have when they see the name written on a piece of paper. Right. You put the words Texas and Christian next to each other, and there is a certain assumption about what this institution is or isn't. And I would um, suggest that this is a far more um, diverse place than people would assume, um, and, um, and, and a far more interesting place, therefore, because you're coming into contact with people who don't necessarily share your worldviews or your lived experience. Um, and, so, and so TCU is, a, is really quite, um, quite a fascinating place. Um, that is not to suggest that if you are a person of faith, that you're going to feel like a stranger here. Quite the contrary. This is a place where faith is um, accepted, explored, as I mentioned, through our, um, through our core curriculum. It's a place where we have um, many different faith communities. And so for a student for whom faith is really important, they're going to find a lot of fellowship at TCU, opportunities for um, uh, for mission work, opportunities to connect um, in, in churches, on campus, around campus. Um, it's just that there isn't an expectation of the student. Um, it is purely an individual choice. Right. And so from that perspective, would you consider TCU a secular university? Or do you think that because of that religious requirement that there is discussion of faith that's somewhat pervasive on campus or not necessarily if you don't want to have those discussions? It's a really great question, Beth, and I don't know that there's a simple answer to it. We are not a secular university. We are a religiously affiliated institution and proudly so, um, but one in which, as, a, as I said, all faiths are, are, are welcome and students of no faith. I think the conversations are prevalent um, in and out of the classroom but again, to the extent that a student is interested. So let's say um, a student is, you know, is atheist and they, they're just, they're not especially interested in exploring faith. Um, they're going to be taking that one class, but that is, that is a class that's taught from an academic perspective. It's not a didactic or, or a, a course. Um, and so a student can very comfortably navigate uh, the waters here at TCU 
um, having no uh, particular faith persuasion. Got it. Okay, that makes sense. And well, and it occurs to me, or, or one thing that I'm curious about is what your thoughts were in taking this job. Right, you're the dean of admissions at Texas Christian University. But your own faith, um, as I understand it, is not that of uh, a Christian. So what it, what was that like? And were, did you have any trepidation? And what's been your experience um, since since arriving at TCU? So it's a, it's it's a, such an interesting question, Beth, because when I told people that I was coming to Texas Christian University, as somebody who strongly identifies as uh, as a Jew, that struck people as very um, odd. Sure. Uh, and to be honest, it struck me as a little odd when I was first exploring the opportunity of coming here. I was coming from uh, an independent school um, locally here in North Texas, um, having sent a couple of students to TCU in the past, but not knowing it all that well. Right. And then I came here on a counselor uh, tour. Um, and so I got to know the university pretty well that way. And I became friendly with several people on the admission staff and got to know the people here. And I thought, well, this is actually a really special place. I mean, the people who are at TCU just bleed purple. I mean, they, they, I have um, been to hundreds of college campuses, as you have. Yes. And you can tell the places that just pop. And yep. TCU was one of those places. Um, the street signs are in purple. They're horn frogs, which is our mascot, etched into the chairs. I mean, the spirit on this campus is just overflowing. And so there's something that very attractive about that to me. Also, as somebody who, again, strongly identifies with my religion, I really respected the fact that this was a community where, where all religions were, were, um, were respected. And so the transition for me was fairly seamless. Um, interestingly, there was an article that, that was written about me in the Texas Jewish Post. Could you imagine there's such a publication called the Texas Jewish Post? Right. Um, and, and the headline was a Jew at TCU. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, and we spent a good deal of time exploring that, what that would mean and, and how comfortable or uncomfortable uh, one could be on, on this campus. Um, I have not had a single negative experience in 10 years here. Um, again, on the contrary, people are so open to discussing religion and exploring and people on our staff want to talk about it. Um, and so it's, it's been, it's been very comfortable. We have people on our staff. I've got a, a staff here in the office of admission of about 40 people. And I think rather representative of the campus community as a whole, we've got people of various faiths um, on, on our staff here. Well, and I always think that wh when you think about uh, a religious affiliated institution, generally speaking, the people who are running the institution are typically, should be representative of what the, the vibe is going to be like on campus. So if it's ultra conservative at the top, there's a good chance not necessarily for sure, but that that might filter down into the student body because the ultra religious is probably going to permeate all of the programs and it's just kind of going to be a self-fulfilling prophecy. So it is interesting that um, that TCU is comfortable hiring a Jewish person to be their director or their dean of admissions and that, you you know, as you point out, amongst your admission staff, which are really the front line for any institution is very representative of the country as a whole and not of a small 
portion of the country who happen to consider themselves Christian. So um, that always bodes well. I'm curious if there are other schools out there that come to mind for you where you feel like the, I mean, I have some thoughts myself, but where the name of the school might connotate one image, but the reality of the school is entirely different. Um, yeah, yeah, it's a, um, uh, it's a good question, Beth. And I think that there, if we are limiting to sort of re religious institutions where there are, there are names, I think the obvious one that comes to mind here locally, especially when one, when one thinks of TCU, often we're, we are put together with our neighbors to the east, SMU, Southern Methodist yes. University. Yep. Um, TCU is located in Fort Worth, SMU is in Dallas. These are sister cities. Our campus is less than an hour from, from SMU. Um, and similarly, I don't think there uh, is anything about the experience for the average SMU student that would scream Methodist. Right, um, right. But And yet I'm sure that there are students who cross SMU off their list because of that. Um, we are the only mainstream Protestant university with the word Christian in our name. So I think we are unique in that way. Right. Uh, unlike some of the other schools. But I mean, there, I mean, you could broaden this in, in, in ways um, and say, okay, well, there's a school in Worcester, Mass called Assumption University. Does that mean everyone there makes assumptions? You know, like, <laughs> so I, I would say like to any student, you need to go beyond, get beyond just the name and try to understand what the school values, what the school is looking for in its students, what the school offers to prospective students right. um, and, and try to get, get past the name. The flip side of that is there are lots and lots of schools in the United States that either are currently affiliated with a religion or were more likely founded yes. by some religion. And you would never know it because the, the name of the religion isn't in the school. Um, and off the top of my head, I could think of several places like Muhlenberg College, where my brother graduated from, is a Lutheran affiliated institution. About a third of their students are Jewish. Right. Um, Duke, Emory, GW, these are places and largely places that were founded in you know, the 19th century or, or before, um, where you're going to see that, that tie, but it doesn't mean that today it's going to mean much for the experience of the, of the student. Yeah, I agree. It feels like there are a handful of colleges out there that people have been willing to kind of overlook the religious affiliation, but for some reason, because they're willing to look more closely, like a Boston college, which is in my backyard here. Right. It's a Catholic school, but if you look more closely at the actual requirements, it's not, you can go and do virtual, you know, it's not a religious school from that perspective. It is, but it isn't. And people are more than willing to overlook that and because they love the idea of Boston College. Sure. Um, I'm curious from your perspective of the kinds of things you would advise students to do um, to get past the name of the college. Where do you look to see what is this actually going to be like versus what the name would suggest it might be like? Yeah, I think that colleges do a pretty good job now of um, putting content out there that will allow students to to get a good sense of the vibe of the place. Um, YouTube is is one yes. place to start. I mean, we're all putting out um, lots of digital content that students can consume fairly easily. You don't have to leave your room to do that. You don't you don't have to go on a campus tour. Another thing I would suggest is talking to people who have attended the institution. Um, so 
you might recommend a school to a student and they might immediately sort of out of hand discard the idea. But if you say, hey, I know somebody who went there and you put them in touch with that person, that's a great way to sort of explore what the place um, is, is actually like. Right. Yeah. No, I think that's great. And I, I think looking at um, course requirements right? You have a specific requirement, but then looking further, okay, well, I have to take this religion class, but what are my options? Right. And sometimes those options will either be plentiful or the option that's available is much more an academic, almost a survey course of religions in general. You know, there, there can be a wide variety and that should tell you something as well about you know, and then looking for other student organizations. Mm -hmm. So, you know, are there Jewish student organizations? If you're a Jewish student considering a place like SMU or TCU or something else, what's there for you on campus? Sure. And if you find nothing, it's possible then that that might not be a great fit. But if you see that there are those organizations, they already exist, that tells you that there is a healthy group of students in those populations already there. I also think it helps to understand a little bit about the um, the religious um, the, the religion that the university is uh, founded under. Yes, um, because yeah. you know to the point you made earlier about BC. I have a um, a graduate degree from Georgetown University in mm -hmm. Washington D.C. That's a Jesuit university. First of all, if you have, know anything about Jesuits, that tells you something right there. You know how highly em highly emphasized education is, um, and for me, it was very easy to say, I'd like to go to school here because once you get beyond the sort of iconography of having a crucifix on every wall, there's nothing that's particularly, um, you know, uh, required about the student experience, at least the graduate level. Um, I can't speak for the undergraduate. I, you know, nobody's forcing you to go to, go to church. So, um, but every college is a little bit different. And there certainly are Catholic schools where that is going to be a requirement. Yes. I think the advice that you provided about digging into the student groups is a really, really good piece of, piece of advice. Heath, thank you so much for taking time today to talk to us. I, this has been great. I learned more about TCU, which is always a good thing, learning more about more colleges that are out there. Now I'm excited. I love purple. I have to come down. I'm, I'm going to be in Texas in September, so maybe I can make a side trip to, to visit your campus. We will be having events around NACAC for counselors, so definitely make a trip up to North Texas from down from Houston. All right, wonderful. And we'll encourage our listeners as well. Uh, you know, check out TCU. There's this great thing called the internet and it makes it inexpensive <laughs> way to get exposure to the school. Thanks so much again, Heath. Appreciate it. Thanks, Beth. Pleasure. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're talking about spending your savings. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. College admissions can be stressful, but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts, who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions, offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. 
Students receive one-on-one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone, to Getting In, a college coach conversation. I'm excited to welcome my colleague, Wally Boudet. Uh, who's a former financial aid officer at both Loyola University New Orleans and University of New Orleans, uh, to the show. We're talking about preparing to spend your college savings. Hi, Wally. Hi, Beth. Hi. Glad to be here. This is such a topical time, topical item, because the calls are just coming in wanting to know what, what to do. Absolutely. So you think, like, you know, you save for college and then... When it's time the first bill comes, now you're just immediately dipping into your savings. But there's actually a little bit of strategy that you need to employ. But why don't, let me back up and let's start with um, let's start with 529 accounts. Um, and I'm curious to get your thoughts. It's something we talk about from time to time on the show. But what makes these such a popular investment tool for college planning and spending? Sure. Great, great question. It all comes down to taxes and penalties, really. This is the only account that allows people to invest post-tax, let the account grow, withdraw the money for qualified education expenses, and not pay any penalties or taxes on the growth and or the withdrawal. So it's just the perfect tool in order to use everything optimally in order to save and in order to spend without incurring additional taxes and penalties. Right. Um, You know, coincidentally, I had a call this morning. Uh, It was a call with an eighth grade parent, in fact, and she is planning on using her IRA. And I'm like, okay, well, let's talk about this for a second. And she's like, well, I've got these accounts set up. I'm confident with the growth on this because I'm managing it. And I'm like, okay, but here's the deal. You know, and this is unknown to many people is that Families can withdraw from IRAs prior to their retirement age if the expenses that are spent on are education related. And that could be even for spouses, children, grandchildren, wide array of family members. Okay. So the key there is that you're going to avoid or be able to avoid the 10% early withdrawal payment, withdrawal penalty. However, the entire distribution is going to be taxed. And depending on where you are, what tax bracket that, that you're in, and depending on how much that you're going to need to withdraw, if you were counting on it paying for an entire year at an in-state public, you could be talking about withdrawing 30000 bucks a year. If you're talking about a private, you could be talking about $80,000 of withdrawals a year. So realize the, tax, the taxable implications on that that are not going to be available or not going to be present with the 529. It makes it the most beautiful thing. Next, right. next, and I'm sorry to jump in, next is that many states, 30, over 30, in fact, have state tax deductions or credits. Okay, 30. 
So that's a great opportunity to save on your state taxes. Average across the nation is about 120 bucks a year, which is not a bad thing. And then you've got this outlier in Indiana where the savings are approximately $360 a year in tax credits. So by a combination of those two things, it makes this 529 a special, special animal that's going to help out in the long run. Right. The only thing I would say is if you're an older parent and you're going to hit retirement age before your child is going to college or right around the time they are, it is possible that you could use your IRA to pay without the tax penalty. But I don't think that describes most parents. So I, I just wrote out there um, for those parents who might be a little bit older and thinking that that's a strategy they were going to employ. If I'm not mistaken, that's 59 and a half. And so that could be applicable again. So, yeah. Yep. But I think the point that you're making is a really good one, which is that those 529 savings vehicles are really attractive for the reasons that you shared. Here's the big question. And this is where when you get ready to start spending that money, um, these are questions hopefully you already know the answers to, but um, maybe you haven't really looked all that closely at it. And so... You mentioned specifically qualified education expenses, right? And so those are going to qualify for that tax-free withdrawal. What are those expenses? Well, interesting, because in every paying for college call that I do, I make sure that families understand an average of what the school's cost of attendance is. And the cost of attendance is a, an actual term that's used. Uh, you could go to look at any school and do a web search for University of Alabama, out-of-state cost of attendance. And that's going to be comprised of tuition and fees, room and board, books and supplies, transportation, and miscellaneous or other. So of those, the qualified education expenses are everything with the exception of transportation. And so we're talking about tuition and fees, books and materials. We're talking about computer equipment. We're talking about internet access, where it's not provided automatically included in the rent or the dorm fee or anything like that. Special needs equipment for handicapped or other, or other students. They can also use those. So it's a broad array of information, a broad array of qualified education expenses. Again, just make sure that you're not getting close to that line where you're questioning some of the things that are excluded, and I mentioned transportation, so that's kind of a gray area. We don't know yeah. what that is. Obviously, if you're going across country, your transportation expenses may be higher. So that's one thing that can be excluded. Also, in many schools, costs of attendance, they include student health insurance. Mm. And student health insurance, where it is incurred, where you're using the school's policy for that, is not going to be considered a qualified education expense. So make sure that you're looking at that. Where, um, where can you go for an official list of those? Is there a place where that exists? There are several websites that are highly reputable that you can feel comfortable going to. Uh, and really a simple web search of qualified education expenses for 529 or flip it around 529 qualified education expenses. Um, there are a couple of sites that deal specifically with that and really helpful, really easy, easy to read um, dialogue. There are some that are more formal, such as the IRS website or some of the investing houses websites 
that make it a little more complicated. But yeah, just do a web search and that'll display everything that you need to do. I think an important part going in there, though, is that, and, and this is kind of associated with it, but not necessarily is going to be the reporting or the record keeping that needs to go along with it. Because in many cases, you may be applying those funds to a third party, meaning if your son or daughter is paying rent and your son or daughter is paying rent directly to the landlord and you are reimbursing your son and daughter, you're going to probably want to make sure that you are keeping track of the actual expenses incurred and the actual withdrawals from the 529 so that if you're ever audited, you've got a verifiable paper trail in order to figure out what the money was spent on. For money that's that's sent directly to the college, it's easy. You, can, right. you could go and look dollar for dollar as to tuition and fees equals this. This was my withdrawal for this. Room and board was this. This was my withdrawal for that. So okay. yeah, just be mindful of that. Here's my next question. Does it always make sense that you start paying for college with your 529 funds? Should you be immediately going to that to pay or are there other approaches that you might recommend? That, that's a really timely question. And one of the most asked questions right now, especially considering the downturn in the market. Many, right. many families, 529 funds are, are bleeding right now and they're suffering. And I think that there's a valid question of should I leave the money in with hopes of a rebound, with hopes of a market rebound in order to negate some of the losses that I've experienced? And I think point number one is that I haven't seen anyone give a crystal ball look and say that, oh, yeah, in two years, the market's going to turn around and you're going to be made whole. Right. That's point number one. So secondarily, there's really a few things that you want to consider. Mm. Number one, if you are eligible for need-based financial aid, and so you are completing the FAFSA or the CSS profile, you're including the value of that 529 as a parental asset. Okay, So that parental asset is negatively affecting your eligibility for need-based aid because they're assessing a portion of that towards the expected family contribution or student aid index, as it's going to be known soon. So knowing that leaving, know that leaving those account, those money in the accounts is going to affect your eligibility for next year. Okay. Right. So again, if you're on the cusp, you may want to liquidate those accounts. Now, assets are assessed for the need analysis formulas at a much lower basis than income. Right. So you'd have to have a fairly significant withdrawal or change in order to affect your eligibility. So that might not be a tremendous issue, but just know that if you leave it in there, it is going to be counted against you for next year. Okay. Secondarily, many families are eligible for the American Tax Opportunity Credit or AOTC. Okay. If you spend $4,000 on eligible expenses, meaning tuition and textbooks, you could take a $2,500 tax deduction. Okay. There mm -hmm. again, there's eligibility based on income, and it's very strict eligibility. Many families don't qualify for it just because of that. However, if you do, that $2,500 in benefit is probably going to give you more value 
then the deduction that you're going to take on your 529. Since you can't double dip, meaning you can't use both benefits of same year, make sure that you are taking advantage of the AOTC first by using that $4,000 from your personal funds in order to pay for tuition and books in order to get that $2,500. And then using your 529 funds to balance the rest of the charges that are out there. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that's a way that you can use both of the, both of these different things and take advantage of everything. Again, the main thing is whether or not the family is going to qualify for that American Opportunity Tax Credit, which has those low, relatively low income requirements. So, you know, kind of a way to do it. The do you net, know what, do you have a ballpark figure on those income? Unfortunately, because... with the notes that I've got, no, okay. right off the top of my head. Okay, no I'm worries. I'm pretty sure we have some blogs on this. So for our listeners, if you're interested, well, you could probably do a web search and it will tell you what the income cutoffs are, but also you could um, look on our on our blog. And um, I know this is something we've blogged about in the past, but sorry, didn't mean to interrupt you. You were, there was another point I think you were about yeah. to make. One point, this is really the point that affects the most people. And this goes into the families who are concerned with their losses in the funds right now because of the market. Well, if the option to using your 529 is going to be a loan, say, okay, mm -hmm. the federal plus loan rate for 22-23 has been increased to 7.543%. When you compare, when you compare the cost of that interest versus your funds, well, in any case, you need to use the one that's going to give you the best financial impact. So in here, even though your earnings are terrible, you're still going to be better off than borrowing the money at such a high rate. Now, there may be an opportunity for a private loan where based on the parent's credit, you're going to have a great opportunity to get a slightly lower rate than the, parent, than the plus loan. But still, in those cases, it's, it's, it's my thought and experts' thoughts that until the increase on those funds come about to where you're earning more than what the rates available on the loans are, it's best to use your funds rather than the loans that are available. Got it. Last question for you as we come close to the end of our time. What if you've saved this money in a 529 plan and now your student has decided that Maybe they're not going to college, or yep. maybe they are only going to go, you've saved for four years and they're going to do a two-year program, right. or you know, they, they got so much money, scholarship money, that a college is, this is a rarity, that college is essentially going to be free for them. Yep. What do you do now? Uh, there's still a, a lot of great options in order to use these funds so that you're not incurring the penalty and the wrath of the IRS if you don't use the fund. Number one is that you can use, you can spend up to $10,000 a year on eligible family member student loan payments per family, per family member. Okay. So that can be the beneficiary. It could be the sibling, uh, your other son or daughter. It could be your, your spouse, $10,000 per year on eligible student loan payments in order to help exhaust those. You've got the opportunity to transfer them to another beneficiary. And the list of possible beneficiaries is expansive. Son, daughter, grandchild, grandson, niece, nephew, um, in-laws, 
foster children, everyone. Great opportunity there. Last, include it as part of your estate and change the beneficiary to your grandchild. No. You've, got, you've got the opportunity to do that. Now, again, there's no reason for you to necessarily liquidate these accounts, even though your child is in nowhere thinking about a grandchild. Right, there's right. There's no reason for you to liquidate these funds early on. You've got the opportunity to hang on to them and make sure they're being spent so that you're not incurring the penalties that you would have if they had been used for non-qualified education expenses. So that phrase, again, comes into play. Sure. Wally, I appreciate it. Really helpful information. Thanks so much for joining today. I'm glad to help. Glad to be here. Thanks so much. Wonderful. All right. We are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to be talking about all of the updates to the Common App for this year. So don't go away. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. College admissions can be stressful, but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts, who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions, offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone, to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. We are talking about common app updates, and my colleague, who I think of as our resident common app expert, Elise Krantz, and she's also a former admissions officer at both Barnard and Bennington. Hi, Elise. Hi, Beth. Thanks so much for joining today. So we're talking about Common App updates, and you have these courtesy of, was it a webinar that the Common App recently just did? What's the source? So the Common App during the summer, they release in some information about what's coming down um, the pipeline so that mostly school counselors. It's not necessarily intended for students or parents, but anyone is welcome to log into these. Um, And they provided an hour webinar where they walked through changes to the application, what's changing, what's staying the same, and just some sort of some big picture things to think about down the road that might we might be seeing. Awesome. So well, why don't we start with what's changing? And before we dig into it, the thing, of course, that's interesting is if you are new to uh, applying to college, right? So if you have a child who is a rising senior or you are a rising senior and you don't have older siblings, this 
nothing new for you. It's all just what is the Common App. But for anyone who has experience with the Common App, there have been some changes. What are those? So the first um, big one that always gets announced is that there are new members this year. So we at College Coach, Bright Horizons College Coach, we love the Common App, I feel like, because it is from almost any college you apply to, most of them will accept this platform. Um, And they just expanded its members this year. So we are thrilled, um, for example, that UT Austin will be on the list, uh, Texas A&M, Western Washington University, Florida International, um, a lot of public universities are jumping on this common app bandwagon, just making it that much easier for students to be able to apply. So that's one nice change is that more students can use this applying to more of the colleges that they're interested in. Yeah. It always makes us happy when uh, some of the, especially some of the more popular schools, and in this case, I think UT Austin, Texas A&M in particular come to mind, where instead of having to navigate a whole different platform at the very least, they can fill out the common app. And it makes it easier for counselors like us. And I think it also makes it easier for students. But perhaps we are projecting. But I think there are a number of public universities in Washington that just signed on this year, but not yet the flagship University of Washington Seattle campus. But there are hints that it might be coming or being announced later this year, like mm-hmm. around August 1st, or if not this year, then next year for sure. They're hoping, I'm like crossing my fingers, you can't see it, but they're hoping it's going to happen um, because that's that's one of the big holdouts right now of, of universities that are not accepting the Common yeah. App. And I, as I understand it, it's more of a budget thing than anything, although that might be rumor and hearsay, but... You are right that certainly there is always a lot in the Facebook groups that I'm a part of. There's always a lot of agonizing when the University of Washington once again does not uh, accept the Common App. But I guess we'll see. I'm going to cross my fingers and my toes that there is an announcement in August, Elise. Me too. Me too. Always. So what Um, else is new? So there weren't a lot of radical shifts to the application itself. A few years ago, they underwent a very big overhaul, a new image, a new look, new color scheme. It's beautiful. Um, so nothing like that this year, but they did make, they're, they're very mindful of trying to make this process as easy for students as possible, especially students that may have some barrier in their life that make, that applying to college just is more difficult. And one of those barriers they found was the fee waiver process. So for those who are not familiar, when you apply to colleges, with the Common App, you pay an application fee for each application that gets submitted through the Common App. Some colleges don't charge any. That's wonderful. Some colleges charge upwards of $100 or more. Mm-hmm. Um, typical, I would say, is probably more in that $40, $50, $60 range, but it really does vary, and it can add up. Um, so in the past, students who for whom paying that application fee had a financial struggle with that, they were allowed to check a box to say, I qualify for a fee waiver and here's why. And then they would have to read through this list, you know, options, you know, whether it's family income or that they had a fee waiver for the SAT, something like that. And then their school counselor would have to verify all of this information. It was a bit of a process. Now it is so simple. It's wonderful. Any student that feels that applying to college financially, that that application fee presents a financial burden, just has to check yes. And then their school (laughs) counselor gets prompted and they would say yes, to the best of my knowledge, the student does need a fee waiver. They check yes. 
Right. And you're good. And you won't have to pay those application fees for college. That is amazing. And to, I think the point you made is a good one, which is just they're trying to eliminate barriers. And that is a big one if you have to jump through all of those hoops. I like that there's a little bit of a check and balance there, right? That there's someone who's saying, yes, I believe this is the case, that this person, um, it would be a hardship. Because I know, um, again, from the counselor groups that I'm part of, that that is a massive frustration for them where they've got a student, they know the student can't pay. For whatever reason, they're struggling to provide the proof that is acceptable and it's just one more thing on a school counselor's plate, and they have a lot on their plates. And it would be great if they could just focus on what they want to do, which is helping the students. And checking a box themselves makes sounds like it makes things a lot easier. So bravo to the Common App for that change this year. And, they, and the, the reason that these changes happen is because of feedback that they get from students and parents and school yes. counselors. They ask for this feedback every year, and they really do their best to try and implement what they can to, to make this process a little bit more seamless. Yes, love that. So there's one other big change, right, with regard to recommendation letters. Right. So this doesn't impact students so much, but oftentimes we run into these questions where a student, let's say, wants to ask a teacher that mm -hmm. now works at a different school or that has retired and has a different email address from the one that they used to have for the com. It was, yes. it's, it can be challenging to navigate that. It's, it's a small population that this impacts, but for those that do just know that behind the scenes now, recommenders can use a single email address, regardless of where they're working or currently worked or, I mean, it's, it's, it's going to make it a little bit easier um, to ask a teacher perhaps that isn't in your life currently at the high school where you attend. Um, so it'll just, just one little change that for those students, it'll be a nice adaption. So I, I'm not sure I totally follow this change. So was it that you had to have, you had to use the email that you had at your job for the Common App or that you used a special email related to the school. Can you explain a, just a tiny bit sure, more? Sure, I this? can. I mean, I don't know how much our, our listeners will will. I know care. it's a little bit inside no, baseball. No, it's okay. But. It's interesting because when, just like students who have to create a Common App account in order to apply, teachers have to create a Common App account to serve as letters of recommendation writers. Got it. So let's say they are working at Southington High School. And that's where they have their account through. And so that is where they can write letters for. But then let's say they retired and now they only have a Gmail account. But previously, they couldn't use that Gmail. Like they would have to create a second account because the Southington account was still active. And it was, Got it. It was complicated. So now um, they can use the same email no matter where they were. It doesn't matter if it's the school account or the private account. It's It just makes it a little bit easier for those teachers and students that maybe had a teacher who, who moved on them in their life. Nice. I like that. Okay. Um, and thank you for the additional explanation. Sure. That's just interesting to hear. Yeah. So what's not changing? You mentioned not that many things are changing and there are some things that are staying the same. So what are some highlights from your perspective of those things? So the essay topics are staying the same. And this is great. So for everyone who's listening and is like, yes, I'm ready to start writing my essays, you can. You just have to um, do a look. You can either log into your Common App account if you don't have one yet. Um, you could just create one or you could just uh, do an internet search for Common Application Essay Questions 2023. You'll see them all listed there. Um, and it was interesting, they always, on the webinars, they always say which essay questions were most popular in previous years. And the new one that was introduced 
last year as a mm-hmm. result of COVID, which asked students to reflect on um, a person who made them thankful in a surprising way. And it was about gratitude. It was one of their least popular choices from this this most recent round. Um, the most popular essay questions are are generally, they haven't changed. It's the topic of your choice. Um, It's the tell us about uh, facing adversity in your life or having personal growth. Um, So those, those are the the common ones, but those are not changing. So same, same as last year. The the gratitude one does not surprise me because to me, it falls squarely into that category of how do you write about someone else? How do you write about yourself when you're writing about someone else. And I think it's a tricky thing to do. So, And the um, fact that they added in the in a surprising way aspect, right? So it's not just about, tell us about being grateful. Tell us about how someone has has done something kind for you that's wonderful. Like maybe it wasn't surprising and therefore you felt like you couldn't write about it. Right, right. It's a little bit of an odd question. So that's interesting. Um, what what else? Activities, that's staying the same? That's staying the same. So you still have, they did switch it up last year um, mm-hmm. so that there's a little more room to elaborate on the name of your activity as well as the role you have in your activity. And then there's room for a description of what you've done in that. So that's all staying the same. Um, and there's also, they introduced, now I'm thinking it's two years old. Probably right. The, the yeah, the disruption, the COVID question? question, basically is the way they called it. Um, so, but they, it's it? broad, so it's really for any student that has had um, been impacted by a natural disaster or a deep and long-lasting some kind of challenge. Um, could have been COVID, an illness, something. So, sixteen percent of students they announced use that optional question last year, and that that'll still be around for students who need it. I, I that's an interesting stat because I've been very, very sort of against the idea of using it just because you feel like you need to answer it. Um, I'm against that in general, right? If you don't have something specific and it's not a required thing, I feel like you just leave it. Um, so it's interesting that only 16% of students used it. To my mind, that's appropriate because probably only 16% actually had something so significant that it warranted writing about it. But that's interesting. And students should definitely feel comfortable leaving it blank. The yes. majority of students do. It doesn't hurt you. Colleges are not looking for something extra there if it doesn't need to be there. Right, exactly. Um, all right, we have a few more minutes. I did want to talk quickly about um, uh, bef- how you could start working on the Common App because the new Common App technically does not come out until August 1st, but that doesn't mean you can't, you have to wait until then, Correct. Correct. Nor should you wait until August 1st. Um, Any student, whether they are a rising senior or even an underclass student, they can create their Common App account now. When you register, you just indicate the year that you will be graduating from high school, um, and then you'll be able to access it. So the part that you would want to work on is the main common application. So this includes questions about your address and where you go to high school and what activities are you involved with. That's the the main part. It's on the, the common app tab. What you don't want to touch are the school-related questions, yes. the college-related specific questions or essays related to colleges. Because when August 1st comes around, the common app has the, that little bit of a refresh and the rollover happens. They call it the rollover. So everything that you've entered in that main part of the application will stay, but anything that you've entered on one of the college-specific supplements will be deleted. So that's why any student now can focus on the essays, the activities page, those basic questions. 
Right. And I think in general, I, I don't think either Elise nor I would advise that you be writing those essays in the application itself anyway. Um, so that's one thing, right? You really want to write it as a separate document and then cut and paste it into the application. But the other reason not to, you, in theory, I suppose you could start working in those supplemental essays for the different colleges. But here's the thing, they might change their question. And that would be terrible because that would be so much wasted time if you spent time working on a specific school's supplemental essay only to discover that in this new version they have a new question. So just just don't touch those for now. Is just my wait. Advice. There's plenty to do. The, for most students, that main personal statement takes a significant amount of time over the summer anyway. You could focus on that. And as I said, the activities page that that is, I know you've discussed this on the podcast, how it does take a lot of effort to, to do that page well. So that's yes. another great where place to focus your, your efforts until August 1st. Yes, totally agree. Elise, thank you so much for joining and sharing these updates with us. I really Absolutely. appreciate it. Always happy to. It's killing two birds with one stone because now I know what the updates are in my work with students. And, and that's always a good thing. Um, okay, so next week, Ian is going to be here hosting. We're talking about LGBTQ plus college search, um, partially in honor of Pride Month, but also just because we think it's really good information to have. And we're going to be doing a listener Q&A. Um, so don't forget, we're here every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and the team of experts at Bright Horizons College Coach. Join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.